Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Jennifer Law. She is a founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. She's also a awarded, rewarded, celebrated cherished filmmaker of documentary films exploring medical ethics. Her most recent project is titled Transmission, and it's about the transing of children, the medical alteration of the supposed sex or the secondary sex characteristics of children. It's a very moving, studied documentary. And in this interview, we talk about medical ethics broadly and, you know, the questions about the power that we have as a scientific civilization. Do check out her film, Transmission, linked below. And without further ado, here is Jennifer Lull. I'm a nurse now. Oh, okay. I'll keep that under wraps. Um, No, no, I will mention that probably when we start talking about whatever we're going to talk about. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about whatever we're going to talk about. I want to talk about my new movie that's coming out. Transmission. Yeah. What's the rush to reassign gender? And see, my background was I worked in pediatric critical care nursing for 20 years. So while a lot of my feminist friends were reading Andrea Dworkin and, you know, Jan Raymond, I was, you know, taking biochemistry and organic chemistry and anatomy and physiology. I'm a science tech medical ethics kind of geek who turned into a nonprofit runner organizer who now makes movies. Hmm. I think this is my ninth movie. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're studied hand. I would like to think so. I've actually even won major awards. I won best documentary film in the California Independent Film Festival one year with one of my films. And I said, oh my God, those people got fired. (laughs) They didn't vet me very well. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) but so I come at these issues through medicine, ethics, philosophy, law. What does it mean to be human? What's the purpose of the body? What does good proper medicine mean? Should it do in the space of, and so this is a new subject the transing of children. Most of my work has been in assisted reproduction, helping men have babies, Hmm. helping celebrities have babies, you know, Andy Cohen and who's his face, Anderson Cooper and the Kardashians, buying eggs, renting wombs. And then gay men started having babies when I said, they're not having babies, they're renting wombs and buying eggs. Women are having the babies. And then trans men and trans women want to have babies. And now there's a new study out that trans women want uterine transplants because they're women and they, sh- they need to have a uterine transplant so they can now have babies. Is that inevitable? Well, I don't know. I mean, if I had a crystal ball, mo- most of like, I don't know if you know the movie Gattaca. So when I was in graduate school, Gattaca had just come out. And that was a sci-fi movie. You watch Gattaca now, that's just mainstream. And that's a pretty short period of time all that has happened. So um, we've already done uterine transplants in women. So And carried babies to term in them? Yeah, not a lot, not a lot. And they usually have to take the womb out after the woman has a baby. 
because she's going to have to live on anti-rejection drugs the rest of her life because she's got this, it's like an, an organ donor. You know, if I put, give you my kidney, you may live well with it, but you'll have to take medication the rest of your life so you don't reject my kidney. So usually after the woman is done having the baby, they'll remove the uterus. Maybe they'll leave it in if she wants to try again, have a second baby, but it won't, she won't go to her grave probably with that, you know, transplant womb in her because she doesn't need it to live like a kidney donor does. Anyway, that's the kind of feminist woman I am. <laughs> why is it, why is there a difference between getting somebody's kidney and getting somebody's womb? <clears throat> I mean, ethically or medically? Well, you know, oh, ethically. Ethically. I mean, I, I have a different value just thinking of those two things, even though from another point of view, they're just... Well, it gets back to a lot of the stuff that we're doing um, with kids in the trans issue. You know, and one of the big tenets of medicine is informed consent. And this is experimental uterine womb transplants and artificial wounds. This is all experimental. So you're basically agreeing to be part of a big experimental project, just like early organ donors were, right? They were part of the first guinea pig. And then we went, Oh, we, we now have all the data so we can give you Benjamin informed consent. Um, so these women and their unborn children are part of this experiment. We don't know. Um, on the developing fetus. She has to take the anti-rejection drugs during the pregnancy because the womb is in her, you know, and what is the impact short and long-term on the developing fetus? We don't know. I mean, on one hand, we're like crazy into natural home births, you know, vegan diets, you know, all of this. And then on the other hand, we have these high-tech experimental things going on. So it's, it's really an issue of the fact that this is new technology, which means we don't have data. We don't have a long, big sample sizes. How do we get good data? We studied millions of people over decades. So we have really good data to say, mm -hmm. you today are the benefit of all those people who are willing to go, like the coronavirus, right? The vaccine. You know, the people who've gotten back, I just got over COVID myself, so I haven't been vaccinated and I don't think I want to be vaccinated. I got natural immunities. But, you know, we have people that are willing to be used as, you know, part of the big medical enterprise, social scientific research. And I'm very pro-research, um, but I'm very pro-ethics and how we enter people into clinical trials and what kind of um, protections are in place for people who are willing to enter into clinical trials as far as safety mechanisms and protections, and you won't be punished. You won't cancel your health care if you decide to drop out of the study halfway through. Um, hmm. And that's what we're doing with kids in this new movie, which is why the, you know, I interviewed medical experts um, you know, who can really speak to the data and what we know and what we don't know. And should we really be doing this? And can a child really give consent? And can a parent really give consent? In this in this space, and is this what good proper medicine and doctors do? Are we recording? Which came first? Yeah, <laughs> the chicken or the egg? Uh, the uh, transing of the kid or the idea of a trans kid? I've been trying to figure out what the idea of the trans kid does. I think it's a well. I I have an opinion, but just the concept itself. What do you think about where it came from and what how, what it's being used? Ooh, that's a good question. 
I don't know. I would love to hear. I, I don't have an answer off the cuff. I haven't really thought about which came first. It, I mean, back when I was actually working in clinical nursing and I worked at UC San Francisco and UCLA and Children's Hospital in Oakland, you know, I worked at major university hospitals where you saw all the, we called them FLKs, um, funny looking kids, you know, and, and part of, you know, these children were genetic disorders or, or new diseases we hadn't seen in nature before or the ambiguous genitalia, the intersex people, um, so that, you know, this, this kind of space around, um, uh, I don't want to say abnormalities, the variations in male and female, um, you know, has been around for a long time, but as far as the idea, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I'm, I'm well, here to listen and learn too. I, I know that it's a very powerful concept and without that concept, there as soon as you have that concept, then things go in a certain direction. If you don't have that concept, if you have something like children with gender dysphoria, you have this other view of what's going on. If you have this thing called a trans kid or trans kids, then you can protect them. You're supposed to protect them. You're supposed to provide for them. And then you have a entire slate of activist literature in the wings, not literature, but actual activists in the wings to promote um, mm -hmm. the existence, as they say, of the trans kid. Yeah. How did you get into this particular topic then? What were the threads that led you? Well, you know, I hate mission creep and I was perfectly happy being in the biotechnology world cloning, of CRISPR genetic technology. Um, you know, I, I live in the backyard of the Silicon Valley, so we like to say we have a front seat on the future, you know, what's coming. Um, you know, I get all excited and energized around transhumanism and putting, you know, making us virtual humans. So the whole integration of science and technology. So I was happy staying in my lane. I don't like mission creep. And the next thing I knew was by golly, men were having babies and then trans women were having babies. And now we're offering fertility preservation for children before they go through, you know, sex reassignment surgery. So that once they remove their uterus and chop off their breasts and destroy their ovaries and their eggs through, you know, testosterone, they preserve their eggs. <laughs> so that if and when they maybe want children, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, you know, science has solved that problem for them that they can now still have their genetic, you know, so that's the sort of how I thought, well, damn it. I need to say something about this. And because hmm. I did work in pediatric nursing for a very long time, um, I felt like I could, you know, most, a lot of the debate, right or wrong, that I see, and I could not be listening to the right people, is in the space of feminism, which is important, you know, women being erased and women having to compete about against big, strong men in sports. Um, or it's through a, you know, a horrible political debate, you know, the, the Republicans, the conservatives, the social conservatives, the religious are over here and the progressives and the, you know, Democrats are over here. Uh, it's being debated around equality, you know, the Equality Act. Um, and, I, you know, my, my strength and my, what gets me excited is the issue of medicine and science and technology and the ethics. So that's, that's how I landed here. So one vector of ethical consideration is the informed consent 
of mm-hmm. whether or not we know what's going to happen or the likelihood of what happening down the road. What are other vectors of ethical tension? Uh, are you investigating of, with regards to you know, with, within oh, the with, domain of, of transition, of medical transition, specifically of those who are under 18, aside from conformed consent or informed consent? It might be conform, conformity yeah. of consent too. Um, what are other you know, tensions that yeah, you well, want to get people to wrestle? They all kind of converge in informed consent. You know, so okay. it is knowing what the data is. Yeah. You know, do we really know scientifically the the long, you know, short and long and longer term harms of putting cross sex, wrong sex hormones in a little boy's body or a little girl's body? Um, you know, it's the psychiatric issues. You know, what what is really going on with these children? You know, you're all, you throw around words like social contagion and, you know, uh, broken families and autism. And it's, these are really just, you know, gay and lesbian little children that feel like they have to transition. You know, so if we really looked at that, and that is all going to be part of the informed consent. What is the, the legal role of medicine here? You know, that goes into informed consent making, um, and, and certainly the law and public policy. I mean, that's what I love about bioethics. My friend at Stanford likes to say bioethics is a conversation and we all enter it at different levels. We enter the, the conversations because we're interested in the law and public policy or we're interested in just the, the hardcore me- medicine side of it. You know, we're interested in the, ph- the philosophical, philosoph- philosophical um, angles. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, should we? really be allowing children um, to do this. You know, that's sort of a philosophical or perhaps if you come from a religious perspective, a theological, you know, what does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of the body? So those, all those kind of conversations come together, I think, to shape and inform informed consent. In this case, it's going to be parents that are making these decisions because you don't want six or seven-year-olds to give that consent. And I'm, I'm, totally fine. Parents give consent for their children all the time in in medicine and in hospitals and in doctor's offices. Um, But how do we give good informed consent that just isn't, well, this study shows, because then next year there's another study that shows something else. And I go, hey, I didn't have the benefit of that study when you gave Mm -hmm. me my informed consent. Um, So it's got to be all those have to come together in a convergence Mm -hmm. around this tenet, you know, thou shalt give good, robust, informed consent. And part of informed consent needs to also include what we don't know. You know, not just what we know, but what we hmm. don't know. Such as what? What's something that we don't know or that's left off the table about what we don't know? Well, I think because we, this is sort of the transing of children is sort of a relatively new phenomenon. I don't know exactly what point in time it started, um, but it, that make, make, sure, make sure that it's a moving target. And as far as, again, back to what makes data good, it's large sample size, it's following people over long periods of time, and we don't have that. So that's a glaring omission right now. So parents today are making decisions based on very limited um, short-term data. And it's, you know, if you read it, you can see that it's conflicting because you'll get this study that says, oh, no, it's fine to pause and block puberty. And and the the suicide argument is overplayed or no, it's really, it's really real. And, you know, we really know um, uh, those suicide risk rates. Mm -hmm. 
in the production of <clears throat> pardon me in the production of transmission yeah. what's something that really surprised you or shocked you oh um well i can't say that because you're recording that will come via the blooper. The, the paid Patreon supporters of Benjamin Voices can get premium content. <laughs> I, one of the things that surprised me that I don't want to say just yet. Um, oh, the heartbreaking stories of the detransitioners. That that surprised me. I mean, at, to the point where you know, sitting down with cameras rolling and filming people that I just wanted to say, I need to step away so I can weep. I can just weep a moment. Uh, for shame of my medical profession that I hold dear, you know, that would do such things to people. Um, that, that really did sh shock me. And just, again, because perhaps I'm just more sympathetic to, I don't want to say the victims, um, the people who, you know, sitting down with the parents who are just struggling with this with their children and really feeling that they don't have anybody in their corner. You know, their, their, their pediatricians or doctors are telling them this. Their schools are telling them this. So people, their own family is saying, you're wrong. You're not up to date. You know, let, let Johnny be Susie. Um, so that just broke broke my heart. Um, you know, I, I I really resonate with the experts talking about the data because I'm just a data junkie. But the things that just really surprised me were just the the pain and the sadness. Have you seen the medical industry go down a similar path, uh, starting yeah. to intervene on human bodies with insufficient data? but with a lot of moral certainty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole area of assisted reproduction. You know, you know, from the very first test tube baby, Louise Brown, born in the United Kingdom some 30 plus years ago, I used to have the date burned in my brain. Um, mm. You know, we have in the United States, you know, a million frozen human embryos. And so there's this whole debate around what to do with the surplus frozen, frozen embryos. And should we have embryo adoption programs? And should we throw them away? Should we, you know... Um, and that's just an area where medicine just took off and didn't stop and think about where we headed. You know, the whole area. We had a surrogate die last week. I'm trying like crazy in the United States. I'm trying like crazy to find out where she lived, what state she was in, um, what her name was. And it's, I mean, big fertility has just locked down. There, the only reason I found it was there was an Instagram GoFundMe link um, on a on a surrogate mother's site and i so through the go and that's how i often find about surrogate mothers who've died in the united states is through there's a gofundme and my google alert will chime or um do we have data on that on the death rates of surrogates we don't because we don't track it so this woman who died somewhere in the united states last week what was the cause of death on her um death certificate the gofundme said she died of an uh, uh amniotic embolism, which is a, a, a not common, but it happens. We've had two surrogate deaths, one this last year in California who died of an amniotic embolism. So think of like an embolism is like a little bubble, you know, mm -hmm. you get up to your brain and you have a stroke. The amniotic fluid as well can have a bubble and it goes through the artery and causes, you know, a massive stroke. So this woman that died last week died of that, but probably her death certificate will say she died of an amniotic embolism. So you can't go back to the data and go, 
surrogate mother who died of an amniotic embolism. Hmm. Uh, but my partner and I actually did research um, last summer. We interviewed 97 gestational surrogates in the United States, and we have crunched all of our data, and we've submitted a, ma a manuscript to a scientific journal publication um, uh, because it's just an area, again, where medicine just went, hey, we're just helping people have babies. We're helping infertile people have babies. We're helping gay men have babies. We're helping single women by choice or men who don't want to be married have babies. And isn't this great? Yay, 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 technology. Hmm. Um, what, and, what's your view of the ethics of that? What, what's the ethical quandary or, or well, the, the vector, the tension, the moral yeah. tension there? Well, for the for what I would call third party conception, that you, means you're using a third party. You're either going to the sperm bank, you're buying sperm. You're going to the egg donor bank, you're buying eggs. You're renting wombs, or you're using a combination of that. Gay men always use an egg donor and a surrogate. They never use the surrogate and her eggs because they want to make sure that no mom, no woman has rights to the child. Oh. You're just the gen genetic mother, you're the biological mother, and you're the birth mother, you're the womb. Um, so, you know, to me, that is a big ethical bright line. We have no business, you know, doing this to women's body. I mean, surrogates have died because surrogate pregnancies are much higher risk than the surrogate's own mother's pregnant, her own baby's pregnancy. Think again of organ donation. The surrogate's carrying a foreign embryo. We take, you know, your and your girlfriend's baby embryo, put it in her womb, and immediately she has an immune response. She goes, this is not my, it's like the talking head, this is not my beautiful wife. It's not my baby. Um, and so we're seeing now in the medical literature that a surrogate mother has higher rates of pregnancy-related complications, maternal hypertension, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia. As a pediatric nurse, I know that if the mom is at risk, that means baby, babies, are at risk too. They have high rates of C-section. In our research, we found that surrogate mothers have more postpartum depression when they give birth to surrogate babies than their own. Hmm. I don't know why. That's another area that our research once published could say we need more information here. Is it because a surrogate mother goes home with empty arms, you know, with breasts that are full of milk waiting to feed a baby that she doesn't have? Um, and then the whole issue of um, commerce. I mean, surrogates are paid in California, 60, 70, $80,000. So what does that do to inform consent when there's money on the table? And if you really need money, what does it do to inform consent? And if you're really, really, really fully informed, you might die, you might have an amniotic embolism. You may suffer postpartum depression, but you go, yeah, 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 where can I sign? I need the 80 grand. And you take the roll of the dice, it's like smokers. Well, I won't get lung cancer. That's what other people will get. You know, we will we will gamble. And so for me, money has no place in informed consent. When was the last time you had informed consent that you had to sign and you were offered a big chunk of money? I mean, egg donors are paid ten, fifteen thousand dollars, and it's basically two weeks worth of their work. Um, one of my films is called Egg Exploitation, and two two of the women in that film suffered massive strokes and will never be able to have their own children from the high doses of fertility. I mean, when you think of an egg donor, and one was at Stanford, so she was gonna, the, the ad she offered was offering her $50,000 to sell, donate her eggs, sell her eggs. Um, and she suffered a massive stroke. She'll never be able to have her children, any children of her own. I mean, she could adopt obviously, or foster parent. So, you know, medicine in the area of assisted reproduction has really lost its way. Yeah. 
assisted reproduction, uh, transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very Frankensteinian, uh, very hubris, very, uh, and then you have the market influences mm-hmm. going on in here. Mm-hmm. And I guess the whole label of transhumanism. Uh, do you oh. think that it's something, it's the inevitable train? Do you think we're going to be able to get off of it? This yeah, enhancement, this I, treating I our bodies it, as limbs I, of our souls. I am a forever hopeful and optimistic person. That's the only reason I can get out of bed every day and keep, you know, doing the work that I do. If I didn't think, you know, some people go, well, why, why do you work there? Why don't you work in something else where you could actually make a difference or you could actually win or something? I'm like, I don't know. It's just like, this is what gets my juices going. You know, I don't like injustice and I don't like injustice at the hands of medicine. Hmm. I mean, you should be able to go to your doctor and he's not wink, 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 sell me some of your eggs. I'll give you some money. So I can go over here to, you know, these really wealthy people who, you know, cause you can't get a, you can't get a take home IVF baby for under six figures. You know, I just hate that. So I don't know. I'm optimistic. Of course we're going to win. <laughs> <laughs> but with the, with the, um, with the market and medicine as a business, I don't know how you decouple of those things once they start to merge. I guess you go to socialized medicine and then you have a bunch of laws that keep keeps medicine under wraps or you go through, like in your documentary, like how do we slow down the transitioning or the medical medicalization of children with gender dysphoria lawsuits are one way to do that too so again like uh, there's policy so i guess policy can intervene policy and and uh, you know we are a litigious people um i i can't speak for outside of the united states but a lot of times lawsuits do um make um a difference you know sometimes if you think of i don't know name your big high profile person if they had a child that was medically surgically transitioned and it didn't go well um people that are, are in positions of influence you know when when i made the film exploitation barack obama was in the white house and i thought well, if only you know he, at the time he had two young daughters who were you know going to be going to university soon you know it's like if only you know barack obama's daughters suffered um from selling their eggs, but then you go, Oh, but his daughters don't need the money. <laughs> They're not going to be selling their eggs. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, at, at one level it is, it is uh, the haves and the have nots. I mean, whenever you see a people magazine spread, it's always a celebrity that has this cute little cuddly baby. You know, mm-hmm. I'm waiting for the people magazine that has Kim Kardashian with her little, you know, Guatemalan housekeeper saying, I'm going to be the surrogate mother for my, you know, low income woman of color. It doesn't work that way. Mm. But I do think lawsuits. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm just forever optimistic that good, reasonable people, if they just knew, um, would do the right thing. And we don't mm. have to just beat people over the head or give people carrots and sticks. You know, I, you- I don't smoke. I, I, I've chosen not to smoke because I, I have information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have young daughters. You know, they won't be selling their eggs because they have information. They won't be using surrogate mothers if for some reason they can't have children. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And hopefully after this movie comes out, if they go on to have their own children, they won't allow their children to transition. <laughs> the trans topic, uh, because it's got such backing from not just the medical industry and the medical industry is on board with this, but you have the education system, you have, I mean, the education system all the way up and down. It started in colleges with a lot of different theories, but now that's completely embedded in rung after rung. Now, now there's a holiday, you know, Pride Month is the greatest holiday that America has now. Everybody celebrates it, and you have to, and it goes on forever and ever and ever. And a part of that is this, uh, you know, within like all these layers, the flag is very diverse, but within that is this uh, acceptance of transition as just the fact of life. Even Blue's Clues had this cartoon that came out the other day, and there was a little cartoon gopher with mysectomy scars on it. Yeah, um, I saw that. Disgusting. Yeah. I, so, I, I mean, the, the cultural force for this is huge. It's huge. It's tremendous. So every little bit counts. But, like, it's one thing to talk about big fertility, but, I don't know, big hormone is is just the yeah. edge of the iceberg. What What do you think about what is fueling this? And even if it sounds like conspiratorial, do you think uh, w what's behind this? Why is this advancing so quickly and so far? Oh, well, money. Um, you know, this is, these are new fields of medicine that are quite lucrative. And if you can, you know, find your, um, stake your claim and be be the head of your academic university's gender clinic, whatever. Um, you know, fertility doctors are the highest paid people at many universities. Like the head of NYU, the fertility doctor who runs NYU's program makes more than the provost and the university president because um, they bring in a lot of money. Um, they're like the football teams. Um, so money is certainly driving it. I think ideology is driving it, um, whether that be... Um, you know, what we used to just have, you know, transsexuals and men with fetishes are trying to just normalize all, all this. And we just, you know, are just backwards knuckle dragging Neanderthals who can't get up with the, the new way of doing things. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's a big, you know, you see uh, all these major corporations, you know, I'm surrounded by people in my family who work for big corporations that have to take their employee diversity training classes. Um, and, you know, all their corporate funding goes to celebrate gay pride parades around their, you know, towns and countries. And that sort of slacktivism, it's easy money for corporations to throw at this. It's no cost. They can be cool and hip. You know, they can be in with the in crowd. So what they spend, you know, 50 or $100,000, you know, putting their logo on some pride banner, you know, it makes them look good and feel good. Um, so it's cheap, um, cheap advertisement, cheap PR. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I, I do think some of these are just um, philosophical questions. We've lost our way. Why did I start making movies? I can't tell you how many books I've written and I shopped them around. I can't get a publisher. Nobody reads anymore. Nobody reads anymore. So then I thought, okay, well, I'll start making movies. And then I, you know, started making movies. And then people were like, well, your movies are too long. It's like, it's 43 minutes. Yeah, you need like, you know, seven minute clips that you can just put out. All day long. So our attention spans have gotten so brief. Um, and, you know, I see something shiny and I see something shiny and we're just off. And, so we don't, we don't think anymore. We don't read. We're not willing to do hard work. We're not willing to say what, 
if we have this world, what will that look five, 10, 20 years from now? You know, that gets at the philosophical side of all this. What kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of world do we want children to grow up in? You know, I'm glad my children are young adults now because, you know, you know I, I dodged the whole social media phone. You know, you know, my kids were the MySpace era. <laughs> but, you know, that was probably quite mild compared to what kids can see online now. So, you know, these kind of questions, um, I, I, I love to have those kind of, I'm not much fun at cocktail parties because uh, I love to have those kinds of conversations, you know, what is the meaning of life? What does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of your body? Um, so. what, what's your take on being a medical professional? What's your take on this idea of gender and sex and the conflation of those two things? It's just crazy. This is nonsensical. You know, I, I have friends that are, you know, actively practicing in medicine right now, and they have to put their pronouns on their, um, you know, their employee identification. You know, they walk into their patient's room. Hi, I'm so and so. My pronouns are. It's just, it's just, what has happened? I mean, I, that's why I, I love Colin Wright. He's like, damn it, I'm I'm a biologist. I know this stuff. And I'm gonna I'm gonna state my claim right here and I'm gonna, you know, write and you know, to be damned if whatever that costs me. Um, hmm. you know, I just think it's absolutely silly. And it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And it gets back to you know science and doing studies and research. I mean, if you develop a new drug or a new treatment for a disease that only women get, it would be stupid to do your clinical trial studies on a trans woman or, you know, vice versa. I mean, it's just ridiculous that we would be, uh, you know, doing research on new drug therapies or new surgical procedures, um, you know, for the wrong sex person. Hmm. What's, what's the point of scientific inquiry then and scientific research and data collection? It's this gobbledygook. Hmm. That's Did a you... scientific word, gobbledygook. Yeah, I, it sounds scientific. It sounds very Latin. <laughs> Did you ever experience some version of, this is a stupid question, but it's the topic. Did you ever like not want to be a woman and have a dreadful uh, experience of with your body and having to come to terms with that? I ask uh, no, I don't think I never not wanted. I mean, I did realize, um, you know, when I was a young nurse and I worked in Southern California, right? And a lot of the people I worked with, you know, you're in Southern California. It's all the beautiful people down there, right? Everybody's got tans, everybody's got perfect teeth, everybody has their Screen Actors Guild license, just in case their agent calls and they need a, you know, a medical person to, to walk in. Or <laughs> So, you know, I remember as a young nurse, you know, being patted on the bottom and called sweetheart by male doctors who said, you know, go get me a cup of coffee, sweetheart. You know, I, I still remember one night, and I don't remember it. If I was, it was either Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, but it was one of the eves, and I was, you know, working the evening shift, <clears throat> and I was just a very young, naive nurse. And all the other seasoned nurses had warned me about Doctor So and So. You've got to be careful of him. And he just pinned me up against the wall and gave me a kiss with his tongue so far down my throat, and wished me Happy New Year or Happy Christmas, whatever it was. <laughs> and I was like. <laughs> but it didn't make me not want to be a woman probably made me think a little bit less of men. Hmm. Um, you know, it made me more kind of suspect um, in 
being more attentive to the older nurses telling me be careful of so-and-so, but um, no, I'm quite happy being a woman. I was born in the right body and maybe I should have been born at a different time. So I've gotten into so much trouble in my youth. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> is, there, is there a documentary on that? No, no. But I always say I'll never run for political office because that's when all your friends from your past come out of the woodwork. And, mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, I was like, you know, I don't want to make it sound any. It was, I was pretty average and normal in my mm-hmm. tomfoolery. Mm-hmm. I so did it. Were- you, yeah. Okay. But well, you're in California. Like, what do you, you, it's just every time you step outside and you breathe, you're yeah. inhaling something. Yeah. So you started doing books. Nobody wanted to read. Then or you started publish. doing movies or publish. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're some sort of erotic fiction about yeah. vampires or something like that. Yeah. Um, then you got into to movies. What's your strategy with this particular movie with transmission? Yeah. Um, our number one strategy is not to be censored on day one when we release it. Okay. <laughs> We're working that strategy. How can we prevent, you know, when you look at the people who like Abigail Schreier's, their books are banned and censored and pulled. Um, mm. So, so right now we're, we're hoping to release it the week of June 11th. I don't have a hard date right now. I wish I did, but that's because we're doing some, just some testing of messaging. Mm. Um you know, to see what's going to maybe get flagged, um, what's going to, you know, tip off the analytics that Twitter and the Facebook gods use to say bad, must go. Mm. Um, so that's what we're working on right now. Because we and, and we also realized, like, after the fact, we went, oh, man, it's Cape Pride Month. And we're releasing a controversial trans film <laughs> in June of all the month. We didn't think about that. I was so worried about not releasing on Memorial Day weekend. I totally <laughs> lost the, the flag. Um, so, yeah, it's really right now, um, we've been privately gathering endorsements. So I've been sending out the um, rough cut versions to, you know, key people that can give us big splash. You must see this movie as fast as you possibly can before Facebook pulls it or you mm-hmm. know, YouTube mm-hmm. bans it. Um, so um, so it is going, it's, uh, it's going to be on social it'll media. It'll be on YouTube and Vimeo okay. for free, streaming for free. Um, our generous funder of the film didn't want monetized one, you know, if you don't have to whip out a credit card and do too many clicks, all you have to do is watch it. So it will immediately go up on those two platforms streaming. Um, now, whether we do some kind of watch parties on Facebook or the, mm-hmm. you know, Twitter, we're not quite sure that's part of our social media, um, plan that we're working right now. Um, so we, um, and, you know, we're working on the press release that will go out, you know, with all the big splashy, um, must New York times must write and report about this <laughs> amazing film. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm sure part of this film though, was we thought we, we shot it during COVID. So there was just places we couldn't travel to. Um, so we had to do some of the interviews, you know, via zoom. So that was a challenge as far as the maker side of it oh, yeah. Normally we just get on planes and we you know bring our crew and we go and sit down and do interviews and there's yeah. quite a few people that you know megan murphy is now in mexico we couldn't get down there and megan's interviewed in the film you know, um yeah so and there were some people that just even though we could travel to them because of their own particular family situations or or covid sensibilities didn't want to do in-person um meetings for you know for all those 
reasons that people didn't want to gather. Are you going to risk the awards circuit? You're going to go push, see what happens there? Um, you know, we will probably, we always enter our films into some of the film festivals. Um, yeah. So like a couple of our films always, no, I shouldn't always have gotten into the Silicon Valley International Film Festival. Um, hmm. You know, I might enter the California Independent Film Festival. There's quite a few film festivals you know, for women making movies, um, women making documentary films. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not expecting to... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the reception will be. It's, you know, I, I kind of think they won't invite us to the parties. Definitely not the red carpet parties. I, from what I know, which is admittedly not much about the film industry, the festivals uh, have been rather captured by a certain ideology that some people call woke. And uh, I don't think that this film jives with a certain contingent well, and I, because I've been making films for so many years now, and we, we used to enter a lot of festivals and get into quite a few. We've got into not always one, but we've gotten into it, which means you get to show your film, which is you still get a laurel, you know, because it yeah. was screened there. But it's becoming much more competitive because, you know, I, I'm an independent filmmaker. I do low budget films like many, many other people. And you can make a pretty good quality film with small budgets. So it's much more competitive in the film, mm. you know, kind of circuit uh, because so many more people are like, well, I got an iPhone, I can make a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I got, I got, you know, software on my, my Mac. I can, I can edit. So part of it is just a competition. So, yeah. Yeah. We'll probably just for the heck of it, you know, enter, some select film festivals that we think maybe we have a, at least a shot at. I mean, you have to pay money every time you enter a festival. It's not free to enter a film festival. So at one point it becomes a budget. Yeah. 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 So what's the, what's like the the burning hot nugget of the, of the film, the, the, the central thesis or idea or message. it's, It's a tagline. What's a rush? What's a rush? You know, the transmission, you know, it's sort of, you know, the car that's that's driving. Can we pump the brakes? Can we slow down? Can we, you know, be more attentive to what we're doing here? Um, so I think that's a big idea. It's, um, and, I, it, you know, we tried to be as welcoming uh, to all audiences. Um, so we didn't want to just say, you will burn in hell if you do this, um, mm-hmm. you know, so we, we invitationally ask questions, you know, one of the opening title cards, you know, can we talk? Um, you know, it, is it gender affirmation or is it watchful waiting? You know, so it's, it's trying to get reasonable people. I mean, our target audience first, Benjamin, is, is parents. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to give them the tools um, so that if their doctor says this, or if their school says that, or if their child is is feeling that this is them, or if their child goes to school with kids that feel that this is them, it gives them language and some sense of, I can speak about this, I can raise questions, I can be a little bit more informed. So that's our first audience. So for them, you know, when they're struggling in their own families, schools, communities, you know, giving them the sense of, we don't have to figure this out today. You know, back to my early days, if we had a child born with ambiguous genitalia, it was then, it was medical doctors who were saying, let's wait. 
we don't have to make any decisions today, which was great because it gave the parents, because the parents were like, well, we got to tell people we had a baby and we had to tell them what the name is. And we got to tell them to buy pink clothes or blue clothes or, you know, and so the parents felt more of a, we got to fix this. We got to do something. And it was refreshing because it was the doctor saying, nope, we're going to wait there. We, we, do not want to rush and start chopping off things or adding things. We need to wait. Um, and so I, I want to, you know, it sounds like I want to revisit the glory old days. Hmm. Um, but, you know, that was, that was a good thing that doctors were doing back then. Of, of encouraging parents that there's time. Um, and, and again, this was in the case of not gender dysphoria, but just hmm. a child that was born with, you know, Kleinfelters or Turners or, or we're just not quite sure yet. We have to do the genetic testing to see what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the big message of the movie is we can wait. And the second would be um, it's not unreasonable for people like you and me and many others who are saying, let's wait. You know, <laughs> What's the rush? Let's stop this. Let's learn more. Let's understand um, before we as one of the experts in the film says, you know, medicalize a child for life. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.